Hey, everybody. Welcome to the new episode of Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. And I'm sitting here outside in beautiful Napa Valley with Andrew Talansky. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Chef. I am more than happy to have you. It's uh, great to see you. Unfortunately, we don't get to hang out enough because your your schedule is just as crazy as my schedule. And I, I don't, don't know about that. Both the schedules are hard, though. We're never in the same place at the same <laughs> time for some reason or another. Um, so, you know, what I really wanted to talk about with you is really just this desire that you had to, you know, continue to push to drive yourself, the never give up and live your dream. I mean, you are truly living your dream. Right? I am. I am. Absolutely. And to do that for a lot of people, they look at it and say it's completely unfathomable. I can't I can't reach those goals. Nothing. And I mean, you your story is very unique. You know, how you were discovered, how you started racing <laughs> in Europe, and then your decision at the when you were really like on that massive trajectory to the top top, you said, Hey, you know what? I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna change things a little bit and add a couple more sports to the mix. <laughs> you know, you you totally flipped everybody upside down and nobody really expected it. I mean, I hadn't I, I kinda had the inside hot seat on that one because you and I talked about it, but yeah, you know, I think a lot of people could really get a bigger understanding, you know, from you directly. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down. You've never given up. You've always followed your dreams and your passion. Yeah, you, what you just said right there really summarizes it. That has been the ethos of, of my life from when I was a younger kid. Follow your passion, live your dream. It sounds very cliche, right? These days there's so much out there with people, follow your dream, live your dream. But when you actually do it, it's it's incredible. It's certainly not easy, but no, it's, it's not easy at all. I mean, you give up a lot to get where you want to be. Yeah. And you know, I would, when you talk about living, you know, living my dream personally, it's, it's taken on a lot of different, different, uh, faces, I think throughout my life, you can trace it back to when I was a kid, what my dreams were then to getting into cycling and what my dreams became with that. And now currently sitting where I'm at, uh, what my dreams look like now, right? They, it doesn't have to be one static thing. It changes throughout your life. And I think that's the beauty of it. You know, if if the dream had just been to be a pro cyclist and that was it, then then that would have been my one dream in life. And then, <laughs> and then we would have then stopped what? right there. Right. And <laughs> exactly. then what? And I think, I think sometimes that does happen with people is, is they, they have a dream and, and they get there, but they don't have another one. And I think it's important to always have something that's motivating you and driving you and something that you're you're chasing you know and and who knows i mean after triathlon there'll be another one i don't know what it is yet but there'll be something so i mean you're a father yes you're a husband you raced in the pro tour for how many years seven seven years 2011 through 2017 prior to that you were racing in the u.s and now you are you're, I like to call it super suffer what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I tried a junior triathlon when I was a kid. I don't know why they put the swim last. That was the dumbest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. That's a bad idea. That's a bad that's idea. That's a really bad idea. <laughs> it's There's really a reason bad. they don't do that. Yes. I do recall why, because I sunk to the bottom of the pool, but you know, you're, you've taken on massive training levels with triathlons. So can you give somebody an example of what your day's like. I mean, like the start of your day and how you how you prepare. Yeah, that you know, every day, I would say almost more so than cycling uh, is is 
is pretty similar, right? I mean, you have, you have three sports you're balancing. Within cycling, you have your times that you're training and it looks like one thing. And then you have massive times of the year where you're racing. You're in a Grand Tour. You're at a one-week stage race. You're racing 80-plus days a year. You're traveling. So you're, your day might look the same, but there's a lot of change. Within triathlon, you're home a lot more. You're racing maybe eight days instead of 80. And for me, I, I, I like... I like that routine, honestly. It's it's nice to, to be at home and kind of settle into that. And there's nothing really special about it. I think on days I'm swimming, swim five days a week, running five days a week, riding three to four times a week. So when you add that up, most of your days you have two training sessions. If I'm swimming, I'm up early, have some coffee, <laughs> some breakfast, get to the pool, come home, play with my son. He's not two yet, so he's still at home. So get to get to spend some time with him get out the door for whatever the next session is, hopefully wrap that up by early afternoon, and uh, and then then I'm home. Eat, rest a little bit, and, and play with my little boy. Um, you know, the days vary as you ramp up towards full Ironman. A lot of those days become full from, from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. between the different training sessions and the kind of the time that you have to commit to it, to the training and the recovery and everything, <laughs> just the amount of time you spend eating on a day like that. But uh, it, it <laughs> adds up. I'm actually really interested in how much food you consume for how much output that you're, that you're putting out. So I thought as a pro cyclist, I knew what consuming a lot of food was like in a grand tour, right? I, I thought I had this concept of, oh, I know, I know how to eat. I know how much I need to take in. And then I it was actually one of the biggest challenges for me moving into the sport is I kept ending up undercaloried, not while training. Like I kept withering away. I would be training and just getting like leaner and leaner and thinner. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to get thinner. This isn't cycling. I want to, I want to build muscle. I, I want to maintain, right? I don't, I don't need to be uh, a stick figure in my <laughs> upper body anymore. No, it, it just, it kept happening last year. And, and we I finally just basically realized I have to eat a lot more than, uh, than I did before. And I don't know if it's the three sports or running, kind of throwing a different thing into it, or, you know, you're doing big swim sessions where obviously you're not really consuming anything during, but it's, it's, it sounds funny to people, right? I mean, I'm, you're also eating high quality stuff. I'm not eating, you know, Twinkies every night to get the calories in, but, uh, that was an unexpected challenge. I think cycling, you're training like once a day. So it's very easy to quantify how much you burn. You still have time to get that post-ride meal in and maybe a later lunch and a dinner and a full breakfast. Oftentimes in triathlon, you know, I don't want to get into the pool on a full stomach. So you're having a super light breakfast, some coffee, you're coming back. You also don't want to run on a full stomach. So you end up having to plan it out a bit more. <laughs> what, so what is your, what do you think is a normal caloric intake comparative? Let's just say, let's just say a day in the Grand Tour. And a triathlon. What is what is your what is your difference? Like an actual race day or just yeah, entry? an actual race day. Oh man, I <laughs> a day in a Grand Tour is is big, but the there's there's just there's that notable difference. I mean, throughout a day in a Grand Tour, you're going to wake up, you can have a proper breakfast, uh, like a pretty large breakfast, because the race starts at you know noon or whatever it might be. Uh, you might even have a little snack before the stage after breakfast, and you're consuming a lot on the bike of solid foods, right? You're putting a lot back in of what you're putting out, swap, <clears throat> swap into gels and stuff later in the day. You finish the, the race, you have post-race post recovery meal, recovery drink, all that's going in. You get back to the hotel, you have some more food, you get massage, you eat dinner. So you're consuming like a lot during the day. Iron Man the full Ironman especially is, I mean, I've done two so far and it, it's another beast, right? When you look at the caloric demands of, of that day, I think 
the bike alone is maybe, you know, 4,000. I, I think by the time it's all said and done, you're, you're looking, depending on your weight, depending on how big you are, you, I mean, you're looking at a seven to 8,000 calorie event, right? And that can change too. I mean, you have people, it's taking them 14 hours to complete. So that's oh in addition to, to what you're burning just to exist for 14 hours of your day, right? I mean, there's, it's an incredible amount. And a lot of that you cannot take in real solid food for. I can't even imagine. I mean, well, for one, you're not eating in the swim. Right. <laughs> so there, yeah. let's negate that whole time period. Yeah. Yep. And you have, you really have to keep replenishing. And I don't think, I don't think people realize that you have to. You know, I think there's this mindset like you're preloading and you're good to go. But I look, I've watched the Ironman multiple times and you have people wearing chest harnesses with belts <laughs> and food and there's water grab. I mean, it's just it's amazing what the body can do when it's trained properly. And in the same thing as a kitchen, you have your mise en place. You're organized. You set yourself up for success. You get out of the water. You're you're set up for the next component you know, have your shoes or you have your body like everything is set for success that's very true you i'm obviously still in the learning process i completed two full ironmans in the 2018 season uh, i believe it was five half ironmans i want to say that i did and the reason this year i plan on racing a bit more because i i need to learn and and all those things you're saying probably much like you did when you're starting out and as as a chef you learn what works for you, what exactly what needs to be put in place to to make for a smooth day or, you know, in your case, smooth night night at the restaurant. And for me, that's uh, there's this interesting balance that I'm sure you can relate to in Ironman that you do have your plan. You have everything planned. I'm going to get out of the water and this is what I'm going to take in on the bike and this is what I'm going to try to take in on the run. And something will go wrong somewhere along the way. So you 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 always have your plan, but something it's just it might not be big. You just hope it's something small nutritionally, but something will go wrong. There's just no situation over an eight-hour time frame where every single gel and water stop is just, you're, you know, your stomach alone is going to just feel perfect. So it's having a plan, trying to execute it. If maybe 80% of it goes correctly, then you, you're going to have a successful day. Well, I mean, it's also, I say this a lot in the restaurant industry, the measure of our success is how we learn to deal with problems. Can you bounce back from something going wrong? And it's not like you've got a support car riding behind you now. I think that's one of the most unique parts of Ironman. And one of the parts that appeals to me the most is it's not just who's the best athlete, right? I mean, from a purely physiological fitness perspective, if it was, we could have the swim in a pool, you could have the bike on a trainer and you could have the run on a treadmill, right? But you don't do that. You have the world championships in the most brutal place in the world in Kona in October. You have races all over the world in in cold, hot, every type of condition imaginable. And it comes down to your ability to deal with adversity. The female winner of Kona in 2018, Daniela Reef, um, she's, she's Swiss, she was the clear favorite to win. And the swim starts... And she's not the best swimmer. She's also not the worst swimmer. She's, I mean, she's an exceptional swimmer, exceptional athlete. And she came out of the water way, way behind. And nobody knew what was going on. Like, what happened? Why is she so far behind? What's, how is she ever going to win? She had been stung by a jellyfish in her armpit right before the, the cannon went off to start. So most human beings would have said, oh, okay, that's my day. It's not my day, right? Would have just said, I, I can't do this. 
she managed to get through the swim. And when you watch her post-race interviews, she's like, yeah, you know, I felt it a bit on the bike, maybe for 30, 40 miles. And then it just started to get better. And I said, okay, you're just going to keep doing what you can do. And by halfway through the bike, she felt better. And by coming off the bike, she was leading the race and it just, and she won, you know, again. And it's, it's that it's, she was the best athlete on day. There's no question about that. She set a course record. She, she, she would have beat a lot of the males who took place incredible performance but the most incredible part of it wasn't that everybody knew she could do that right she did that on a day when the worst possible she started that day in the worst possible way and still managed to do it she overcame adversity exactly that's that is i mean i think the number one component like it's mind over matter right perception versus reality we say these things a lot but it's living through them and pushing to that next level i mean in 24-hour bike racing, we used to call it the witching hour, which was from 3 till the sun came up, right? The witching hours. And on the bike, there's those days, and I'm sure, I don't know at what time when you're in that triathlon, where is that time for you? Do you, are you, do you suffer more in the pool or in the water? Do you suffer more in the run? Where is your, where is that moment for you? I mean, we should have this conversation a year from now again when, I, when I've gone to, uh, to, okay. do, no, to, do, to, do, to do some more races, because that's another really good question. I, one thing people tell you about it, and much like you mentioned in 24-hour mountain bike racing, when you just look at the sheer amount of time you're doing an event, right, certain thing, you're not going to feel fantastic. You think about eight hours of your day, right, or for, for an amateur athlete, 10, 12, 14 hours of your day. And it's very rare that every moment of 14 hours or eight hours even, you just feel amazing. Even if you were just sitting at home reading a book, you're going to have little ebbs and flows in your energy, in your mental state, in every, just in life. And that's all amplified in Ironman. I think in each event in all across the board, I've learned for me, I've seen that there's a, an ebb and a flow and your energy is going to come. It's going to leave a little bit. And I think the key that I'm learning, obviously, I think, after racing several more <laughs> events this year, I'll, I'll have improved that skill even more. But it's, it's learning to minimize the bad and maximize the good, knowing that the bad is always going to pass. Um, and if it doesn't, then, <laughs> then, you, then you're not going to have a great day. But in my experience thus far, the bad has always passed. And I agree with that. I think it's the same thing in the restaurant industry. Everybody, you know, you get in the weeds. Like everybody shows up at the same time and you're just – you just look and the tickets come pouring out of the machine and the look of fear on a lot of the cook's <laughs> face. And it's like, guys, just do what you do. You know how to do it. Focus and that time will pass. And it does. And they always perform. And I think that's part of what we are. We thrive for that moment. And then once we get through it, we're like, okay, if I can do that, I can do anything. Yeah. The, what you said there, do what you do. I think that's a very powerful phrase. I think it's something that applies to whether it's in the kitchen, whether it's an elite athlete, whether it's somebody, um, no matter what their job is or what you're doing in life, do what you do. I think in that vein, that is predicated on doing what you do on a daily basis. I think the ability to overcome that adversity when you're faced with it, whether in an Ironman, whether in the kitchen, is the way you conduct your life on a daily basis, the way you deal with a situation like a traffic jam, the way you deal with something unexpected that doesn't relate to what your job or sport is, the way you, you train your mind, basically, to, to have a positive reaction to adversity, 
rather than to have what is oftentimes the easier, why me, why is this happening? I can't do this. And the moment you go down that path, from personal experience, that's exactly it. it you will end up in that situation. You won't be able to do something and, and it will kind of overwhelm you. Or conversely, when you have trained yourself to respond in a positive way to a challenge, then you know you might not be able to conquer it every time, but certainly you're going to be better equipped to. I think that's actually a really, really true, valid point. I mean, for the restaurant business or in life, there's always speed bumps, right? And it's how we deal with them. And I think, you know, I definitely deal with a lot of um, anxiety and I go, you know, I deal with stress in, in very not good ways. And, you know, I have anxiety and depression issues. So when those things flare up, something as simple as a traffic jam could send me down a spiral. So you have to train yourself to get out of the way, right? It's like teaching yourself literally to, okay, I know I'm stuck here. Get out of your own way before you turn it into a bigger problem than it really is. And it's not that easy. Then, like, yeah, I'm saying it like, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. This is easy. I think my wife would hit me over the head right now and say, but you don't do that. Why? And it's not an easy task. It really isn't. And I think you have to, like you said, teach yourself and reteach yourself over and over through repetition to correct that problem. Like, it's not easy. No, it, it's certainly not. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because we can certainly sitting here talking about it, everybody's like, yeah, it sounds like a self-help book. That, that's great, right? Okay, let's be positive. Let's just get over it. And right, it does, it does sound that way, but it doesn't change the fact that, that it's valid. And I can absolutely relate to what you're saying. I think aside of maybe sport or my life that people haven't seen a lot of is in order to, and I'm accepting of it, but I, I think the way I've, I've competed in sport, the way I am, in order to get the high highs, you have low lows. And I maybe that's the way it is, right? I, I prefer that to kind of going through on a middle level numbness <laughs> the majority of my life. I'll take the lows in order to get that. But, you know, my family, uh, my close friends, my wife, certainly, they're the ones who see me at, at those lowest of lows. And, and it, it's, it's just, it's not easy. Whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter if you're a chef, an athlete, if you, if you, you have, if, if you're doing something you're passionate about, you're going to be emotional about it, you're going to have stress, you're going to have anxiety. And I, I think it's, it's then in learning to deal with that. And I've certainly, as I've gotten older, I've, I've recognized my tendencies a bit more and how I react to things. And it's something, you know, I'm 30 years old. It's, it's a work in progress. Absolutely. And I think, dude, I'm 46. It's still a work in progress. <laughs> I, I don't think it ever stops. It doesn't. And you know, I think some people can learn to deal with it better. I mean, I need to use medication to help. Um, and if I didn't, I mean, my body doesn't produce the chemicals to calm my brain. So I think for some people they need it. Some people they don't. I mean, there's, there's, meditation tools. There's many different ways. And I think there's no shame in that. I mean, I think it's just really figure out what you need and make it work for everybody around you and yourself. Yeah. It's, I, I think I've done a lot of reading about it the last maybe three or four years. Some, some people I follow on social media, books, et cetera. And, and I'm by no means an expert, but I think recognizing your own tendencies is kind of the first, the first thing that comes up, right? If you tend to get really negative about things, if you tend to get frustrated with it really easily, if you tend to just go down a bad path, 
um, like you said, it could be a traffic jam. It could be a bad, bad race. It could be a bad day at work. It could whatever. be starting your day by stubbing your toe. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Some, that's, that could be such <laughs> like, it's such a simple thing. It's like, damn it. Why did this happen to me again? And then you just, yeah. it's like the Titanic. It starts. it starts and you can't get out of the spiral. No. Teaching yourself to stop the spiral is the hardest part. I, that's absolutely true. And, you know, my wife would attest to that. I mean, and she, she, I'm by nature, I feel like I'm a, ge- a genuinely positive person, but Kate is, she's a positive person who also is one of those people who just manages to really live it on a daily basis. So it's always, I have this kind of beacon there whenever I'm going down a path like that, whenever I'm just spiraling a little bit downward of like, okay, you know, she's dealing with her son who's up, but he's amazing, but he's, he's up all night, he's this, that, and the other. And she's smiling and she's happy and she's and it's and it's real. It's not putting on a front. And I'm like, OK, that's that's what I'm striving for. Right. That's what I'm I'm striving to be is is not to to be rid of any adversity or to be to have just every day in my life go perfectly to plan and smoothly. But it's to be able to deal with the adversity that comes up, to be able to deal with the 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 down times a little bit better. So I want to I want to bring up a couple different things. So. I want to talk about how you got to a world tour team because I I know that story I've I've heard about it in the past and I think it's really there interesting. There are different versions, I think. There are. There's like four different ones <laughs> yeah. that I've heard, so I'm curious, like which one's the real one? And I'll give you my real one. Okay, let's 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 start with that. Okay. Well, yeah. I uh, I mean, my path. How? I, where do you want to start? <laughs> Well, I mean, the the story that I've heard is you racing. The story that the story that I've heard is you racing by yourself with no support at an event and piece basically you being given bottles and food out of a car by another team who basically was like, "Where in the world is this guy coming from?" That's what I was. That's the the story that I've heard. You were on a, a domestic team and you were then that was a a world tour team that that was there. Yeah, so that's certainly that is a version that's been out there in public and and how correct is told. that? It's Half it, quarter. There are parts that are correct. Okay, there are parts that are correct. I think my my version. I have a. It was very monumental kind of turning point in my life. So I think I have a pretty good recollection of it. You know, obviously Jonathan Vaughters was my boss for seven years, and he has a tendency to put his own little spin. And frankly, he has a lot going on, so his own memory of it might be skewed. JV likes to. <laughs> to granted he does have a really good eye for talent if you look at the people and riders oh, he's yeah. picked out he does but jv likes to occasionally take a, maybe a little more credit than is due uh, Aesop, Aesop fables. situations Aesop's yeah. fables. Yeah. yeah so you know my my path to the world tour was certainly not a stereotypical one uh you think of elite amateur under 20 junior then under 23 cyclist and he's he's my friend i haven't talked to him in a while but tj van garden somebody you can compare to for anybody who follows cycling phenom junior national champ phenom under 23 it was just like there was never a question that he was going to be a world tour rider and a very successful one at that there are several stories like that on the other side you had guys like him who then went and you know gave up the sport completely because it's 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 brutal but TJ is a good example of the opposite end. I went to my first junior nationals with both my parents who were divorced, but they they rallied around cycling to help me get to Pennsylvania where guys like Ben King, TJ Van Garder, and uh, Alex Howes, all the all these guys were there. I knew who they were, right? Because they were big, big deal of junior cyclists. They had no idea who I was. I was some 17-year-old kid in a funny-looking colorful kit from Miami, Florida. 
And did it have flamingos on it? No. It okay, didn't. I just it had didn't. to ask that. You I can... think there might have been a little pink though. <laughs> little pink. <laughs> yeah. So I started riding it at 17. I went. I had some great support early on in, in my cycling career. I went through a really uh, one of those kind of down times in 2009 or the beginning of 2009. I, I went over to Europe for the, my first time with a team called Amore Vita. That story's been been rehashed several times. I really, if you want to talk about a year racing on my own, that was it because I, I made the decision after three months over there to to leave, get back to the U.S., change my ticket. I said I I don't I don't want to be in this. I did a few couple other races. Team came to Philly week and stuff, and I did Philly with them and maybe a couple other small events. Raced in their kit, you know, till the end of the season contractually. But I was on my own the the whole summer. Right? People thought, oh, he's on this pro team, and I said, well, if, if you know, this is this is pro. I'm going to quit immediately. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is not a you know. I had I was on a I literally I had better support my first year as a junior rider. Um, and it was it was a shocking experience because I thought that being professional would look a bit different, um, especially in Europe. I had this kind of romanticized idea about it. It was. I think everybody does. I, I think that's a straight across the board. It's viewed as one of the most beautiful experience you're going to get there and everything's going to be espresso sitting in a cafe and you're like you get to ride in the most beautiful places but it's brutal yeah and the, you know there, there were those things I, I got exposed to Luca Italy and rode learned some amazing roads did some beautiful riding it was a place where I went back with the under 23 national team to train and somewhere I lived my first year with with Garmin and there were plenty of positives. And I, I think I would say it wasn't the worst experience of my life because so much good came from it. You know, it really turned me inward and made me question what I was doing. And it, basically at the end of that, I, I came away with a reaffirmed commitment to giving another year, uh, giving everything I had to the sport. And if at the end of that year I didn't make it as a real professional, I was going to go back to school because I, I was very fortunate. And I think a lot of Americans are. I went to a, a very you could say prestigious high school in, in Miami, Florida, right? A really nice private high school. I, I took AP classes. I took, I, I did all the things you would do if you were going to go to a really high level university. And then I decided to, you know, throw, throw all that to the wayside. So I said, okay, I'll go back to school if I can't make a real living out of this. 2010, 2009 in June, I met my wife, my now wife, Right. And, and I think that was a turning point because her positivity came into my life. And in so I, I recaptured something at the end of 2009 and nobody this is part of what's one of my favorite parts of the story. Nobody, unless they were there, remembers. I was just training all summer up in Truckee near Lake Tahoe, uh, where we we will now soon live full time. And I, I loved it up there. And, and throughout the summer between meeting Kate and, and training, I just kind of recaptured that love for the sport. And I went to these little races in Chico, California, local races at the, the end of the season. I'm not a crit racer by any means. And I remember I lapped the field solo in the crit and then went to the front and continued to like attack and, and go off because I didn't know where anybody was or when. And then I I won the road race solo the next day under some just, I, I remember it very distinctly. It doesn't, the specifics don't matter, but it just was kind of a circumstance that I, I didn't see how I was going to win. And then I just found a way. And that was the end of my 2009 season. And I just had found whatever I'd been missing. I found what people said about me when I was a junior rider, like, oh, you can, you know, guys in Miami would tell me, I think you can be pro. I think you can do this. And I was like, yeah, sure I can. And it rekindled that. And then going into 2010, that was the year I couldn't get an email returned, a phone call returned. If somebody did return my email at the end of 2009, 
So this is a good story about following your dream. Everybody has that, right? I feel like everybody faces this, but I got the, I got the emails that I now know were like, they had spots on the team. They just didn't want me to have a spot on the, on their team, whether it was the Rabobank under 23 team, whether it was Trek Livestrong, whatever it was at the time, they had spots. I thought, oh, they're actually full. And then once I went and moved through psych and I was like, oh, that's just their way of not just saying no. They just are trying to nicely say no, but it was still a no. And one person, Anthony Galino from Cal Giant uh, Specialized was the team at the time. It was a mix of under 23 and masters, um, kind of, yeah, masters riders. And they were stepping up a little bit that year. And I talked to Anthony and to this day, he's the only person in the sport of cycling who did every single thing he promised he would do. We sat, we, we spoke with each other on the phone and I said, I don't, you know, there were no salaries, anybody on the team, you got great equipment and a great race program. And I said, Anthony, I want to go to races X, Y, and Z. And he said, Andrew, I will make sure you get to these races and I will make sure you have what you need to succeed. And he did every single thing he promised. And he's the only person in the sport who ever did that with me. Wow. Yeah. So 2010, I, I don't actually like the story of people saying I was all alone and this and that and the other, because for Cal Giant to go to tour the Gila and those squad of guys, nobody salaried. Jesse Moore, who's a very good rider who coached me for a long period of my cycling and triathlon career, career sacrificed his own races for me or his own chance at the race for me that week. And this is diving, diving deep on it. But basically, I had one of the best experiences of my life on that Cal Giant team. And the, some of the people I met became lifelong friends, uh, some incredible support at the races. So, yes, I was on an amateur team. I was this kid racing with that year, Lance Armstrong and Levi Leipheimer and, and, all, and all that. And that's great. But I had some incredible support to, uh, to get to that race. I, I think... It, you know, it gets embellished and that's great and that sounds all nice, but I just, I can't credit enough that, that Cal Giant program, that changed my, my whole life getting to be a part of it. I'm glad I asked you. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, it's, it's now, it puts everything, it puts a lot of things in context. It does. And it's, it's one of those things where you can't say I made it on my own because, you know, in 2009 I was on my own and I was driving around and I had no support and everybody saw how that went. People told me later they thought I was going to quit cycling after 2009. That's how kind of down I looked at the races and how poorly I was riding and it was just a reflection of where I was at and all it took was for somebody to believe in me and to rekindle that belief in myself and to provide the support that I needed to, to shine and that's what I got on Cal Giant and with the under 23 national team in the 2010 season and that's what what you know propelled me into the world tour so with, without that support I, I wouldn't have been there. I can't claim that it was me. You know, I, yeah, I did my thing on the bike, but that wouldn't have been possible without Cal Giant and the under 23 national team. That's awesome. So you get over to Europe. You choose to live where? My first year, I chose to live in Lucca, Italy. Yeah, that was another one with uh, JV. We were in the Cayman Islands at the first camp, right? And I mean, Garmin, I don't know what they do. They still do some good ones, but we had some awesome camps when I was on that team, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a Neo pro, and they're like, you're coming to the Cayman Islands for training camp. You're like, okay, this is awesome, right? I mean, <laughs> bring your like, bathing suit. <laughs> this has changed a little bit, right? I mean, yeah. this is, this is yeah, bring, bring your bathing suit. It, it was it, it was awesome, right? I'm with all these these guys who are heroes, Christian Vandeveld, um, Ryder Hedgehog, Tyler Fair, like just the whole crew of people who who were the basis of that Slipstream Sports organization. But yeah, JV, we're we're at a 
at a bar one, you know, one evening before dinner. And, and he's like, yeah, so when are you going to get to Girona? And I was like, well, I'm not living in Girona. And he said, what? You have to live in Girona. I said, no, it's not in the contract, man. I'm living in Italy. And I think that was the very first point. Me and JV would always go back and forth between being on the same page and, and kind of feeling like we were doing something together to kind of butting heads. And that was the story of our our relationship. So it probably started right there. Just <laughs> telling him like, I had that, you know, I, I wanted to be part of the team and everything, but I've always had that. I want to do things my way a little bit. And I did eventually live in Girona and it was way better than Luca and JV was right. Um, I'm sure he could see that, you know, I was 23 year old kid. I just had to come to that conclusion on my own. <laughs> That's amazing yeah. though. That's amazing that you like, so and he was just thinking, like, I just gave this kid a three-year contract. Like, what? Don't tell me what you're going to do. <laughs> he was probably yearning for the days of just being like, no, you're going to do this, like old school cycling. That doesn't happen anymore. Well, maybe it I does. Some teams, maybe. Yeah, yeah. quite possibly. Yeah. So of your races in Europe on when you were in the World Tour, what was your favorite event? Yeah, my favorite's a hard one. For, for a while, for the first years of my career, it was definitely Tour de Romandy. Uh, rate one week race in Switzerland, but it was it has to be the Vuelta España. That was my favorite favorite race throughout my whole career. Got that's the race Grand Tour I did the most times, had my best results there, and I loved racing in Spain. I loved you know it kind of felt close to home living in Girona, and it was uh, it was always great. It was my first Grand Tour. It was it was not my last Grand Tour, but it was the last Grand Tour I got a good result at, and it was it was my favorite. Okay, so now we're gonna we're gonna veer off just a hair. Get a drink of water, because this one's kind of interesting. So I have this pretty heated debate with Jose Andreas, okay? We have this heated debate, Jose and I. So Jose is a Spaniard through and through, and his firm belief is that paella is the king. And I grew up Italian, and I think risotto's the king. And we have this pretty heated debate over, I say that the Spaniards basically lit a fire and got lazy and fell asleep, and that's how paella got made. And he says that the Italians don't know how to control fire. That's why they have to stand there and stir. So <laughs> we have this pretty heated debate over risotto or paella. So I'm curious, which do you prefer? That's a really tough question. We had... Argue- not that I don't like them both. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But this is a pretty fun, like, this is a constant battle. We had a chef, Sean Fowler and his wife, Olga, and I think over in Europe, I I mean, almost undebated not debatable they were like the best in the world tour and we were really lucky to have them on slipstream sports and sean and olga happened to make both of both those dishes extremely well i i have to say when sean when they made the paella i was i was a fan i don't know if it was because like a lot of the time we were in spain when he was making that it tended to be more of a vuelta dish it wasn't made in the middle of like april at Nice or march in Nice or something but I would lean towards the paella. Maybe that's my time living in Spain. All right, check one for Jose. <laughs> <laughs> you get that one, Andreas. Jose. It's hard. Oh, oh I mean, my result, God. Yeah, they're just different. It's two different things. I think things. it depends on the on the day. I agree with that. I agree with that. I love paella and I love risotto. I think they're both great. But this is like this ongoing heated debate we have. It's pretty hysterical. It can be brutal at times. <laughs> it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. So I want to look. We've all seen it. You knew I was going to ask you about this. We talked about it before. I think that day in the tour of never giving up, will I th- I personally feel that that will go down as a historical day in the Tour de France. It will never be forgotten. My son still talks about it to this day. People talk about it all over. 
you wouldn't fucking quit. You were battered. You were bloodied. You were, let's just be honest, you were pretty beat up, right? Yes. <laughs> but you <laughs> Put wouldn't, it lightly, yes. You wouldn't quit. And there's, there's something to be said for knowing when to stop, but also the tenacity of never giving up, right? Yeah. And those two, whether it's in cycling or anything, is a very difficult thing to, to make work together, right? And some, we obviously know which one of those two won in that conversation in your brain, right? Yeah. But like, what was it that made you push to keep going when you know as well as I do, you probably should have pulled over. It's a, obviously it's a it's a great question and it's a day that's been talked about, you know, plenty, plenty in different different respects. Um, I haven't actually told my version of it that many times. You know, people people just took it with what they saw and said, "Of course, we know exactly what happened." And you're like, "Okay, well, <laughs> that's sure, that's fine." And and frankly, at the time, I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time rehashing it. I, uh, you know, what you said about knowing when to stop versus the tenacity to never give up, I think that balance and that, those, those traits, the, those two things, the balance of those two things are what differentiate people in life. And that that's truly my, my belief that whether you're an athlete, whether you're a chef, whether you're a successful businessman, whatever you're doing those are kind of the two warring things. Do you keep going or do you stop? Right. And, and everybody says, Oh, we always have to keep going to be successful. Sometimes, right. Sometimes true. That's, sometimes it's not true. Sometimes it is knowing when to stop. I'll come back to that on that day. I had, you know, we talked about highs and lows. I had come off the high of winning Dauphiné. One of my greatest regrets of my, one of my only regrets of my cycling career is not fully appreciating that moment because in cycling, there's always another race, right? I just won one of the biggest one-week races in the world, this incredible experience. And, you know, I always said if I could ever do it again, which I never got to, <laughs> but if I could ever do it again, and my advice to anybody would be, I would have kept everybody there. I would have paid for it out of my own pocket to keep everybody there, change their flights if the team didn't want to. And we would have sat down at a great restaurant, had an incredible meal, shared some great wine. And instead, everybody split, right? And, and that was what we were doing. You had flights to catch. You had a bus leaving. I was going to recon the Tour de France time trial. And I went and stayed at the Campanile, which is not my favorite hotel in France, right? And, and I was like with one of our swingers, who's a nice guy, mechanics, who's a nice guy. But that was how I you know, celebrated winning the Dauphiné. And, and in hindsight, that was, I didn't think much of it at the time because it was like, oh, we're on to the next one. Like, I'm going to go to the Tour de France and I'm going to be racing at the front. And then we can really celebrate, right? And in hindsight, that didn't happen. So I was on this really high, high of like, I won the Dauphiné and I had great training into the Tour de France. I had everything set up in Girona. The team was fully supportive. And we went there. And it was one of the few times in the history of Slipstream Sports that we went there with a clear goal. And they were they were supporting me wholeheartedly. I remember. Yeah. I remember 100%. And I and think that thing, what you're saying, is living in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, so so that's basically what it came down to that day was living in the moment. We threw through some crashes and I ended up sick because of the crashes because my body was just bruised and battered and, and there was nothing left. And I knew that 
that day when I got dropped the moment the road went uphill. And I was so, I was just so angry. I was so angry and so disappointed with myself. Both those things at myself. None of it was directed to anybody external, at the team, at anybody. I just, I, I wanted to like literally just disappear off off the race, off the face of the planet. I did not, I, I didn't know how to, to, to cope with what was happening. I couldn't understand how I'd gotten there. I did understand what had happened to get there, but I just couldn't believe it, fully wrap my head around it. And that day, I so I, I kept pedaling. You know, we, I could hardly pedal, and I was in so much pain. And I had some screaming matches with one of the directors. Um, it was not, you know, Robbie Hunter who ended up behind me. I had a really good relationship with him, but... I, I went and basically what it came down to, eventually I was riding alone with the car behind me and all I was actually looking for was a place where I'd get left alone that I could quit the race, um, like where there were no spectators. I was like, I, I don't want to deal with this whole, like I've watched people quit the tour, I've watched it on TV, I've watched, you know, I'm not watching it in person, I watched it on TV and I'm like, I don't need this whole shindig, like I just want to stop and I, I need this to end, you know, so I stopped and I pulled over on the middle of nowhere in France and sat down on a guardrail and I sat down there not thinking, okay, I'll get a pep talk. I thought now I was like, now my tour de France is over and this is how I go home. And I'm going to, I'm going to go home and, and figure out how to work this out. And so I sat down there and, you know, the world works in interesting ways. I, Robbie Hunter was the absolute perfect person to be in that car behind me along with, um, with our doctor and, and Alex Banier, who was a mechanic at the time who knew me really well from uh, Slipstream Sports. And I I sat there and I don't remember exactly what I thought except that, okay, the camera's on me and now I have to do, like, I'm going to get my number ripped off and I just, I'm ready for this kind of embarrassment to be over. I'm ready for it to be over. And Robbie came and he just, he said, okay, like, you know, he he didn't, people think he talked about, I saw some negative criticism about Robbie after that day where people said, they should have told him to get in the car and this and that. And only maybe a Tour de France rider or any elite athlete or somebody who's been in that position anywhere in their life, doesn't have to be in sports, can fully understand what that moment was. Robbie couldn't make that decision for me. Robbie couldn't say, you have to get in the car because I didn't have a concussion. I wasn't, I wasn't bleeding on the side of the road. I wasn't going to do anything that damaged me in the really, really long term, right? But mentally, there was a, there was a lot of damage to be done one way or another. And I think Robbie knew that because he's been on both sides of it. Robbie's raced the tour. I think Robbie stopped the tour and or he certainly stopped, you know, other races. And the, I, I sat there and he just, that's kind of, he said that he's like, Andrew, you can get in the car and we're going to, we're going to take you to the hotel right now or to the hospital if we want to do any scans and you can be done. It's no problem. You can get in the car. But if you want to get to the finish line, there's only one way you're going to fucking do that, and it's by getting on your bike and pedaling the fucking bike. So sit here. He said, take, take a few minutes and decide what you want to do. He said, I'm not going to tell you what to do, and nobody's going to tell you what to do. He said, we support you 100%, but only you can make that decision. And something about the way he said it, I was just like, okay, I'm sitting here feeling sorry for myself. But I'm in the Tour de France. And see, in my mind, people said, oh, well, later, we'll see if he can continue the next day. I, I knew my tour was over. I knew there was no, that I, I just knew I wasn't, there was no continuing. So I was sitting there thinking, what's the point? And then I realized the point is that I just don't want to stop that way. So I got back on my fucking bike and, and pushed the pedals, like Robbie said. And, you know, 
for us and for Robbie, it didn't matter about the time limit. It didn't matter if I was alone in the dark. He said, I'm going to stay with you until you get to the finish line. But he also said, he said, if you get back on this bike, we are going to the finish line. Right? No, no. He said, you're not stopping again. It does sound like a parent thing, right? You yeah. have to admit that sounds like yeah. you're going to say something like that to your kids soon. Yeah. I think you won't. No, he, he was. He was looking after me because he said, like, you're going to make a decision. But whatever decision you're we following make, it through. like, we're not we're not going back and forth. I support you 100% if you stop. And Robbie was a tough, tough person, cyclist is, for anybody who knows him. And coming from him, I said, okay, if we're going to go, we're going to go. And so we went. And I just remember doing this whole thing. And, and Robbie didn't talk about the time limit one time because it just wasn't a thing to us. It was just getting to the finish line. And I got to the finish line. And the moment I got to the bus, I... I I broke, you know, I, I was, I was in tears. I was just, I had, I knew, I knew it was probably, I mean, internally I knew the race was probably over. I just didn't, I didn't want to go home that way, but I, I, I knew somewhere in there, I, I was broken either way. Right. But the way that I broke stopping the raid, not starting the next day and making it to the finish line within the time cut that day, getting to officially finish that stage. It was this little tiny piece of honoring my teammates and honoring all the hard work that I had personally put into it and that everybody around me had put into the race. And it was almost like, yeah, it wasn't really leaving on my own terms, but in my mind, it felt like that little sliver of leaving on my own terms. I chose, we chose not to start the next day instead of abandoning on the, in the middle of nowhere on the side of the road in France. I I sat there. Yeah, and I, I watched the whole thing. I watched it with my son. And people, you know, that was one thing I had no idea was occurring at the time. I didn't know there was a, a a camera with me. I thought I think the only thing I recall is that I thought the moto was a commissaire, right? Obviously to make sure that I'm not holding onto the car to cheat or anything. And I didn't that was one thing I was proud of. I didn't draft the car. I didn't I didn't there was not one single thing that could have been construed as, as pushing the it? limits. Have you watched no, it? No, I've never watched okay, it. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to tell you from a viewer's point, that was the first time they ever extended coverage. You know that. They announced that. They'd never extended coverage that long to to watch you finish. That was announced while you were racing. We are extending the coverage to see, because Andrew is going for the gusto to make the finish. You were on all the way through. It was amazing what they did to make sure that you got the recognition you deserved because you wouldn't quit. And that was a big deal. I think that that was very powerful and it showed a lot of not only, I would say the tour as an organization because they respected you and they respected the fact that you were not going to quit. And that was to them huge. And that just set a whole new precedent. You set a whole new precedent that day. You made it so that people won't give up. You set a tone for kids, for adults, for people not just to quit. You didn't, you quit on your terms, not on anybody else's. Yeah. I, <laughs> and I'm not right? saying, no, look, at, I'm not saying that in a, don't, don't, and I hope you don't take this in a bad way. I'm not meaning no, it no. like that. Like you, I don't say, I don't mean it like quit. You stopped because you had to. Yeah, there was, there was no, no alternative. And I apologize for saying quit because that's really not fair. No, it's all, it's true. I mean, you quit you quit the race. You don't continue in the race. But, you know, one thing that I, I always wanted to recognize and nobody ever asked me about that day was that I fully recognized and it, I was more of a, a maybe well-known rider at the time because I had won Dauphiné and going into the tour, there was a lot of 
hype around me and the team and everything, and that might have played into it. But the thing within the Peloton that's known is there are so many riders who do things like that on a maybe not everyday basis, but on a fairly regular basis. It could be, you know, my teammate in the Vuelta in 2016, Simon Clark, broke his. He ended up, it was a really bad shoulder injury. He rode up a mountain with one arm. He rode down the remainder of a descent, across a valley, and up a mountain with one arm on the bars. He got the doctor to wrap his arm to his body so that he could finish because he probably knew it was messed up but he's like you know i don't want to get i don't want to give up and and so there are these things that was just an example of a of one i knew of personally but and saw him at the finish and he wasn't able to continue but there there are these things i want people to know in pro cycling these things happen all the time there might not always be a camera but they these people professional cyclists are truly warriors right i mean i, I swear it is as close to being like going into a gladiator ring and being like okay let's see let's see who comes out right like let's just see what happens and yeah i'm not, I'm not trying to exaggerate it's nothing like like war or things like that but i'm saying as far as like for a spectacle like gladiators were a spectacle they went into a ring and people watched and you you your ring your your arena is the are the roads and you're taking you're risking your life people do die people go into comas people have shattered bones every single day of a bike race. And how many thousands of people are on the side of the road pushing, touching, standing, yelling, throwing smoke bombs? I mean, come on, it's like it's it's insane, right? Yeah, there is no other sport in the world where people have access to the athletes at the highest level like professional cycling. It does not exist. And at po- and at points it's unsafe. Yeah, absolutely. There there are points it's unsafe. It's almost just that you but there are so many things about professional cycling that are unsafe. It really, <laughs> I, I think it ranks pretty low on the on the grand grand scheme of on things. the grand scheme of things. Like it's really just not your. It's never been my greatest concern. <laughs> yeah, it's like because that. I mean, it's always amazing viewing, right? Being a viewer and watching, and I get up every morning, every day. I watch it all. I'm actually trying to go this year. Cross my fingers. Nice. Um, I got to finally, you know, Paris-Roubaix is actually on my birthday this year, April 14th. Awesome. And I got to ride Paris-Roubaix for my 45th birthday. I rode the the um, the day before they do the full course, and I did that. And it was a dream. Like, I always wanted to do that, right? Because it fell my birthday. I used to have birthday parties at 6 in the morning and yell at the TV. And But there was, to physically be there, ride it the day before, and then watch these guys come through. Like, I don't yell at the TV anymore. I don't tell anybody to go faster because <laughs> I know they can't go any faster. I know from physically doing it, like, physically doing it makes you put a sock in your mouth and shut up because it's so intense. The speed levels that that, that racers are racing on not even just on cobbles, just in general, the level at which people are riding, you have no idea. And for years, I'd be like, go, 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 go. You know, it's like, my son's like, dad, nobody can hear you. <laughs> They're in another country and you're yelling at the television. I mean, it's exciting. There's chess being played, physical chess, you know, with with people and, and like who's pulling and who's not and who's sucking a wheel. and But to physically watch it go by, the ground shook in the Ehrenberg Forest. I've never f- experienced anything like it. It was like 
oh my God, did that really just happen? And it's so fast. You get like literally, maybe if you're lucky, the whole Peloton, it's a minute <laughs> and a couple stragglers after and that's yeah. it and you're done. And then you get in a bus and then you follow it along the highway and they're next to the highway and you're watching and then hopefully you get in a velodrome to see the finish. But to be at the tour, it's an even, even more daunting concept. Do it. it and to throw the Paris-Roubaix into the tour, it's just adding fuel to the fire. It's like, hey, look, there's a bonfire. Let's throw a couple propane tanks on top, you know? I don't think people really grasp the concept of the bikes and the speed and the training and the energy and the work that everybody puts in. And then it's just go, 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 go. Sleep, eat, go, 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 go. But the speed and the way everything's going, I, I couldn't have ever imagined until I stood there on the side of the road. And like you said, I, I was standing next to JV in the VIP section at Perry roubaix watching him pull his hair out that year because one of his guys was there in the final three. And I'm standing next to Stuart O'Grady and I'm looking around. And if I had stuck my arm over the guardrail, I would have changed the course of a race. Yeah. And probably shattered my arm in like 10 pieces. But but it was so crazy. That's how close. That's how much access you have. Just like you said, it doesn't exist in any other sport. You can't get close enough to a football field. No. You can sit on the edge of the basketball court and have a seven-foot-tall giant land on you. <laughs> but they're not going to hang out and talk to you. Right. Right? Like, you can go to the team bus. You can hang out. You can have a conversation. You guys talk to kids. I mean, that's... Yeah. You guys want to see the next generation out there. It's it is when you when you compare it to modern professional sports, there's an unprecedented level of access that that continues to exist in pro cycling. I think a huge part of that is what gives it its character. I think we depend a lot. We I'm not a professional cyclist anymore, but the sport of professional cycling depends a lot on the belief in the goodness of humanity. And it sounds like a broad statement. Right. But it really does for a race to go off successfully with all the spectacle, the Tour de France specifically, or Paris-Roubaix in a large event, they are dependent on the goodness of people. And you see the negatives, like with Vincenzo Nibali this year, right? And he, he had an injury that could have impacted his entire career. career. Yeah. And that's the downside of it, you know? And, if, you know, unfortunately, when you're in it and you see it happen, the only thing you think is, oh, thank God it wasn't me at that exact moment. And later you think, oh, what happened to him? Was he okay, right? But... You just, it's just one of these many things that gets rationalized to yourself. And, you know, in pro cycling, it, it's part of what makes it so beautiful, though, is that you are like, I will never forget the first time racing about the West in the Tour de France. It was 2013. We went up it twice, which I think made it pretty spectacular crowd wise. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, the crowds were everything and more that I had watched on TV and dreamed of. And, you, you know, if people were all back, you just wouldn't get that. And they're, you just have to really hope that people are respectful enough of the racers and that they're there to enjoy. They can party and everything, but still respectfully enjoy the race. And you're always going to have people who who push it too far and cause accidents. And it's been debated to death, but I, I don't personally, I, I have no idea what the solution could be for that. You don't want to see it happen, but you also can't. It's part of what makes cycling cycling is having that sort of access. And you, if you removed it and sterilized it like, all the other sports, you know, that works because there's an arena and they charge admission and there's, there's yeah. all this stuff. It doesn't work in cycling because that's why people will stand on the side of the road for all these hours to see riders go by for one minute. 
And that is that they're, they're so it is a sport of passion because they see you in person for one minute and they can't even find you in the Peloton. So why would you do that? It's because you love it and you're passionate about it. And that's what the sport is based on. Well, I mean, same thing with cyclocross, right? People yeah. stand in the mud in the snow <laughs> yeah. and get completely knackered drunk, eat frites, drink yeah. beer, scream and yell and freeze. Yeah. Freeze their butts off. Yeah. To watch the laps. And they yep. may get a like, you know, it's 45 minutes. They may see their guy. Usually they're all screaming for the dude <laughs> in the first three positions yep. anyways. But that's cool. Right. And that and I think that's what's interesting. I mean. In triathlons, is it the same? I mean, we can be on the side of the road. We can cheer you on. I know a lot of areas are roped off, right? Um, but we still have access, right? Yeah. I, I mean, Ironman's a, a different one. It's so much more like, I, I, I you know, I equate it to running. It's, it's, a, it's a totally, cycling is its, in its own unique world because it's this team sport and it's, it's it's has something like the Tour de France and has events all year, right? Very much like a like a football season or a, even you know soccer, European football season, basketball, baseball, whatever. It has has this full running season, has all these races and events where all the teams go to all the top eighteen World Tour teams plus other invites. Yet, because of the way it's structured, it can't be sold and marketed in the same way. So it's this big sport, this team sport. And it's got all this access and it exists in this like in between. It's not it's not a participatory sport, right? When you when you go down and you start talking about gravel racing and things like that, you change that a little bit. But at the elite level, it is not a participatory sport. It is a professional only sport, much like football, basketball. It's not accessible to anybody else. And nor is it fathomable exactly what the riders are doing to anybody else. They cannot directly relate. I always said if you could somehow, you know, being a professional cyclist, like I got why everybody liked watching it and everything. But it is just the ultimate, you, you do it at the end of the day and you can ask any pro because the feeling of getting to be in that, the rush, even if you were like in the moment, you hate it and you're like, this is so dangerous and it's insane. And you come to the sprint finish of a Tour de France and you get over the line safely. You're just like, oh man, that, that rush is insane. And it is why everybody continues to do it. It could be their thing is a sprint. It could be helping a teammate, but those crux points that everybody's so stressed and in the moment can hate that's what makes you love the sport as an athlete. I said if we could package the the feeling, the emotions of being in the Tour de France with 5K to go on a sprint stage, man, everybody in the world would be a cyclist just because they would be looking for that feeling on their bike, right? But unfortunately, we can't sell that and you can't package it. Um, which makes That's it, your new yeah. dream. There's your new dream right yeah, there. Yeah, well, I don't I don't know how you're going to do that. I, because we can't. I'll, at the same time, never, never do I want to drop any normal human being into the middle of a Tour oh de France peloton. Because they, they wouldn't have a rush at all. They'd have a rush to the hospital. Oh, my place. God. I can't imagine. We're going to. Um, but no, you know, Ironman Ironman's different. It's a, it's a very participatory sport. And I think that's part of what attracted me so much to it is you have the elite level. At, every, at, at most races, there's an elite calendar. There's not a pro field at every race. But you have the men's and the women's events and you have, you know, say Kona, you have 50 men and 50 women, whatever exactly it shakes out to be. And then you have 2,300 athletes participating. It's much more on a smaller scale because there's not as much space as a marathon. It's like, it's a lot more like running. You have elites at the New York marathon and then you have, I don't even know what 20,000 people or however many it yeah. is at the New York marathon who some are very serious. Some just want to finish their, you know, I think you have to qualify. So maybe second marathon, whatever it is, set a personal best just finish whatever their goal is and that's much more like iron man is you have this elite level of the sport that you know people maybe look up to a bit or they can it, it's very cool it's a, it's a lot more i think relatable on the human level to to everybody participating but um 
you know, spectator-wise, I think they're packaging it better and better as far as the viewing goes for, say, Kona, the Ironman World Championships. Getting to see it in person, if you're into it, I mean, I was there before I had done my first triathlon in 2000 when I left, when I was transitioning into 2017 Kona. And getting to be there and soak in that energy, granted, eight hours is a long time. Like, we took a break and got some food and stuff, right? But the energy, it's an ebb and flow. It, it The start, the swim, seeing that insane start of the pros, and then the age group athletes is is a whole nother ball game. And then that energy building throughout the marathon and, and kind of just a, it's unique. And I really like it. And I think people who are into endurance sports and certainly into triathlon obviously like it as well. That's amazing. I think there's, there's a lot for people to learn on, on what's out there. And I think, again, you, you're talking about age groups, which range from what, what's the youngest to what's the oldest in the, do That's you know? Great, man, I, I think there was something out there about, I mean, I, I'm certain people who are 18 and stuff or 19. I think I don't know what the youngest age in Kona is. That would be an interesting thing. But I, I know it's young. And you start thinking about that, that ask on physical ask on a body. And you're like, think of myself at, say, 19 or something. I don't know if it was 19 or 18 or younger, perhaps. But it's uh, young all the way to I mean, there there are some, you know, when you look at the upper end of the spectrum, that's where it that's what's crazy. Incredible because they had to qualify for Kona. And then they have to finish within the, the time cutoff, right? The How, mid, what is midnight. the time cutoff? So in, in all Ironmans, it, it varies. It's usually midnight. They usually try to set up the start time as midnight. Granted, it, it can – the age groupers, when they start, like Kona, it's all, all, it starts at the same time, right? You can be a different place in the water, but it starts the start, and midnight's the cutoff. The clock strikes midnight. If you are one second or two seconds over, like, you you didn't finish. You Sure, you crossed the line, but Oof. it is – they are uh, – they are uh, it it can be brutal in that way but it's part of what make, keeps people coming back you know yeah yeah midnight midnight time cutoff is there uh for most races i don't know how many hours so it starts i think at 7 a.m so what fif- 15 hours all right so i got a couple quick questions yeah because i've taken up a lot of your time <laughs> you got a busy day so red white or rosé red beer or bourbon beer Coffee or tea? Coffee. Uni or caviar? Uni. Sashimi or nigiri? Sashimi. Pork or beef? It's a tie. Oh! Comedy or action? Comedy. Star Wars or Star Trek? I don't like either. Ah! (laughs) I don't like either one. No, I think that's why I ask, man. They're always so... Everybody's always got a different one. Yeah, I just was never, I was never into the, a lot of the sci-fi. That's awesome, stuff. awesome. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you for taking so much time. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you're doing in 2019, and uh, I'm hoping that we can actually cross paths, ride bikes, and uh, share a meal soon. That sounds good. Thank you for having me, Chris. Thank you. Cheers. All right. All right.